Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the day. Uh, we thank you for your word. And uh, I know just um, based on my conversations that there are people in this room that are uh, discouraged and tired and frustrated and worn out. And uh, I just want to pray that your spirit would be in this place and that we would be able to um, just for a few minutes, uh, set aside what's going on and hear from your word and, and what you want for us and uh, that we would receive it joyfully and obediently uh, as your children. We thank you again for Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. There's an old uh, preacher joke about a guy that was uh, at his wit's end and uh, decided to go up onto a bridge and he really was contemplating kind of ending it all. And another guy came along the bridge and said, listen, stop, don't, don't do this. You absolutely do not do this. And he said, nobody loves me. And the pastor by said, no, God loves you. Don't you believe in God? He said, yeah. And the other guy said, well, are you, are you Christian? Or, you know, what, what, what's the deal? He said, yes, I am a Christian. He said, well, I am too. Are you Protestant or Catholic? He said, I'm Protestant. And the guy said, me too. What franchise are you a part of? And he said, well, I, I'm Baptist. And he said, well, I am too. Are, are you Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, well, I'm Northern Baptist. And the pastor by said, I am too. Northern conservative Baptist or Northern liberal Baptist? And the guy that was thinking about jumping said, well, I'm Northern conservative Baptist. The pastor by said, me too. And he said, Northern conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern conservative Baptist Eastern region? And he said, well, I'm Northern conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. Pastor by said, me too. And he said, well, Northern conservative Baptist Great Lakes region council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. The guy that was thinking about jumping, so I'm Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And the pastor guy pushes him over the edge and says, die, heretic. Um, right, so, and it's kind of, it's kind of a, a weird, funny illustration about what, what, it, what is the truth of today's message that we really do all have a desire, whether it's denominationally or just in terms of our life decisions, the way that we're living life, we have a desire to be right. We want to be right. Uh, we want to be correct. We want to know that we're making the right decision, that we're following the right path, that we're, we're doing the right thing. And I was talking to Cheryl a week or so ago, and she said, in my years of life, she said, I don't think I've ever lived in a culture so infatuated with anger and offense like this culture we live in right now, uh, that we have a desire to be right. And I think that's where a lot of our anger is coming from and where a lot of our offense, offense is coming from. We have this desire to be right and to live right. And the Bible kind of word for this, uh, the Bible word for this is righteousness. Now listen, when it comes to righteousness, we have warped the discussion a little bit. And I believe that at the end of the day, the reason that we have kind of warped this conversation about righteousness is because we have answered one question wrong. I really believe it comes down to one question. And the question is this, upon what, upon what will I base my understanding of right? All right, we all have a desire to write every single person. If I were to go around this room right now and I were to just bring up some hot topic subjects, we're not going to do this, but if I were to say, hey, like President Biden, you know, former President Trump, the economy, uh, uh, you know, the way COVID is being handled, all of this stuff, we were, if we were to go around and have you express your opinion, every single person in this room would have an opinion of that, I am sure. And every single person in this room would be absolutely convinced their opinion is correct. Because if you weren't convinced it was correct, 
you'd have a different opinion, right? You have your opinion because you think it's correct and it's right and you're on the right track. So we want to try to answer the question, upon what will I base my understanding of righteousness? And we're going to start in 1 John 2. We're going to be in a couple different texts today, but we're going to start in 1 John 2. And what you need to understand as you're reading the Bible is that when the Bible talks about righteousness and the Bible talks about right living and all that, there's kind of two discussions in the Bible happening, uh, sometimes at the same time. But first of all, there's what's called positional righteousness. Positional righteousness is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. That he came, he died for our sin, so in Christ my sins are forgiven and I am now righteous before God. I am now right before God. God looks at me and he sees me as righteousness. Great theologian, one time said, this is called sometimes the great exchange, that on the cross, I gave Jesus all of my sin, and from the cross, he gives me all of his righteousness. And so when God sees me, he doesn't see the sinfulness of Steve. He sees the righteousness of Christ Jesus. This is positional righteousness. No one can take this away from you. Your position of being declared Sometimes it's called declarative righteousness. Your position of being declared righteous is secured on the cross of Christ. And when God sees you, he does not see your sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. All right, it's very important that we understand positional righteousness. Then there is day-to-day ongoing righteousness. And here's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about that. There, there is an ongoing work of God in our lives through the Holy Spirit to help us make right choices. So being right and being righteous is not just important to you. It is also very important to God that you be right and that you make right choices and that you walk in a righteous way. So much so that God, Jesus, gave you his Holy Spirit to help guide you and direct you and convict you of sin. This is a doctrine called sanctification. The first doctrine is justification. That now, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, God sees us just as if we'd never sinned. We're, we're justified. This is sanctification. That now, in the life of a believer, God is always at work, helping us to walk in righteousness, helping us to become more righteous. This is the type of work that John is talking about in chapter 2 of 1 John. 1 John 2, starting in verse 29. This is the last verse of chapter 2, then we'll be in chapter 3. All right. If you know that he is righteous... You know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. All right, see what great love the Father has lavished on us? That we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we uh, will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him there is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or know him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. And here's the definition of righteousness. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Is it just me or do we sometimes overcomplicate things? Right, righteousness is like a big kind of fancy church word that you expect to hear about on a Sunday morning when you come to church. And you're like, man alive, what does it all mean? What does righteousness mean? John tells us, you wanna know what righteousness is? The one who does what is right. 
The one who does what is right is righteous. So the question remains, upon what are we going to base our understanding of what is right and what is wrong as we move forward? And you notice at the very beginning of the text, he said, listen, let's get focused on Jesus here. That Jesus came to take away our sins. And he came to do it in both the ways that we talked about earlier. That he came uh, to justify us and forgive our sin and make us positionally right with God. But sometimes there is this foolishness that goes around in some Christian circles that says that, well, my sins are forgiven and God and I are good. God sees me as righteous. So what does it matter? Right? Does God even really care what I do from this moment forward? And he says, no, you have a great misunderstanding of the scriptures that Jesus came to take away your sins, yes and amen. He, he died for them, but he also wants to deliver you from them. And this is good news. It might not sound like good news, but it is good news. That he came to die for your sins so you could be forgiven, but he also comes to deliver us from our sins so we don't have to keep living the way that we've been living. Why does he do this? Because he loves us. And he wants to help us overcome them. So you see this family language in the text. All right? In one part of the text, it says, we are children of God. God is called our father. There's this language of we are born into him. And how many of you know that when you are family with someone, you start to take on some of their mannerisms? You may have noticed this in your family or whatever, that your son or daughter will be doing something. And husbands, like, you'll turn to your wife and you'll say, man, that is so you. Or your wife will turn to the husband and say, man, like, when they do that, that is so you. It's not usually super complimentary. Every, every once in a while it is, oh, they're so kind. That is so you. But most of the time they're like, you know, eating cereal, you know, like a crazy person. Like, that is so you, right? Yeah, my family doesn't eat cereal that way. That sort of thing, right? Um, and, and we tend to kind of take on these traits within a, a family. Um, you, you take on their mannerisms. And so he uses all this family language to describe it in this way, that we are children of God. That when it comes to our right living and our righteousness, we are taking on some of his mannerisms. That we are beginning to look more and more like him. So here's the argument John is making in a nutshell. Put it on the screen for you. Seeing Jesus and knowing Jesus results in righteousness. Seeing Jesus and knowing Jesus results in righteousness. And every sin that we commit is probably because we've lost sight of one of those two things. We're not seeing something and we're not knowing something about Jesus. Consider lying for a minute. Lying happens for a lot of reasons. The sin of lying happens for a lot of reasons, but some lying happens because we feel like we have to portray ourselves to the world in a certain way. We want people to see certain things about us and we feel the need to conceal other things. But when you see Jesus and you know Jesus, you see that he is a God of grace and he absolutely forgives your sin and that sin tends to grow in the dark. So in Jesus, we are free of this kind of concealing of our life and we are free to live authentic lives. That all of a sudden, we're just free to kind of share who we are with the people that we love. We're free to be authentic. It is when we lose sight of that that we start to play this game of, oh, I gotta portray myself in a certain way. Consider addiction for a moment. Addiction happens for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons addiction does happen is because we need to be comforted by someone or something. And, and we forget what the Apostle Paul said. The Apostle Paul said, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He comforts us. 
He comforts us in all of our trouble so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received. And addiction is the process of trying to be comforted by someone or something that's not Jesus. But when we remember that Jesus has a desire to comfort us, uh, it, it, it allows us to walk in freedom. Consider greed for a minute. Greed is a, a sin that takes place when I really believe that I have to do what it takes. I have to do what's necessary to be blessed. I have to bless myself. So I'm taking whatever I can. I'm getting whatever I can. I'm li- really living kind of a selfish life until I realize that Jesus is the source of my blessing and Jesus is my provider and it frees me up to live an open-handed and generous life. So here's the argument I think John is making and that I want to make to you. That Jesus, we talk about upon what standard are we going to base our sense of righteousness, of right and wrong and right living. And I think John would say, Jesus. Jesus should be our absolute standard for righteousness. His life, when you consider his life and you look at the way he lived so generously and the way that he served and the way he was committed to kindness and the way that he was committed to truth telling, you absolutely see the the righteousness of Jesus when you study his life. So when you consider his life, when you consider uh, his teaching, uh, you get a sense of his righteousness. The the righteousness that Jesus taught, there's a a little chunk of scripture in Matthew 5 through 7. It's probably the longest sermon uh, that we have of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. And in each of these these chapters almost have a theme in terms of the righteousness ethic of Jesus. So I want to just show you a couple of these real quick. Starting in Matthew 5, verse 21, Jesus says, he's preaching uh, to a crowd. He said, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment, and anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And he goes on, Jesus goes on in Matthew 5 to have all of these examples of adultery and lying and resentment, and each example teaches the same thing. That in the righteousness ethic of Jesus, it's really important that we pay attention to our hearts. That our hearts are important to God. And I say this because there is this kind of cultural ethic in the United States right now that says, man, as long as I'm not hurting anybody, I can pretty much do whatever I want to do is righteous as long as I'm not hurting anyone. And Jesus would say, hold up, just for a minute. (laughs) You need to pay attention to your heart. Your heart is a really important thing. They, they understand, Jesus understood that an unrighteous act doesn't come out of nowhere, first of all. It starts in our heart. Do you, do you, have you ever had this experience where like you're talking to someone and all of a sudden something comes out and it's a little harsher than you intended or a little angrier than you intended or a little bit off color or whatever and you say it and you're like, oh, I, I don't even know where that came from. I've gotten the habit when I do that to my, when I, when I say something like, I, just in my head, like when, I, when that happens to me, I'm like, I know where it came from because I've been preaching for a really long time. And so I know that, you know, one of the passages that I share with our church on the regular is out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when something just comes out, it is a red flag to me, like something's going on in my heart, 
there's an anger settling in here. Um, th- there's an animosity. There's wh- whatever, whatever is going on there. Something is going on in my heart. And so Jesus would say, man, pay attention to our hearts because if we don't think our hearts, right, this kind of ethic of whatever you want to do is righteous as long as it's not hurting anybody, it doesn't pay attention to the heart at all. And if we don't think our hearts are determining our actions and determining uh, our worship and affecting our decisions, I think we're really, really naive. So one righteousness ethic of Jesus is pay attention to your heart. Here's chapter six. Be careful not to practice your acts of righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your father in heaven. This is chapter six. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do you get the impression that if Jesus were teaching this today, that he would say something about social media here? It is our modern day version of announcing it with the trumpets, right? So Jesus says whenever possible, and sometimes it is not possible, but whenever it's possible, allow your acts of righteousness to be done in private. They say, why, why is this a righteousness ethic of Jesus? That your acts of righteousness should be done in private. And, and the reason is, is that Jesus doesn't want us to get into this prideful place with our acts of service. He cares about our hearts. And so Jesus knows that if you're doing an act of righteousness and you're immediately going to Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever uh, and shouting it from the mountaintops, like he's talking about the trumpets here, that it would be very easy for a pride to set in. And all of a sudden, the act is not about serving God or praising God or helping others. All of a sudden, it's about me getting my due, and Jesus wants to protect us from that. Last one, chapter 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me, you got to raise your voice a little bit. This is how I pictured you. Let me, let me get that little speck out of your eye when all the time you got a board coming out of yours. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye, right? Do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under your feet and turn and tear you to pieces that he uses the, the lesson of being judgmental here, but there's any number of examples he could have used. And the teaching is this, the righteous person loves to engage in self-examination. They don't run away from it, they run to it. They don't run away from it. They're constantly looking at their heart and looking at their actions and looking at their mind and asking this question, is there anything in me that's not pleasing to God? Is there anything in me that's not pleasing? And this is a constant day-to-day thing where they are engaging in this kind of uh, self-examination. And I think this is why John, all of this is why John can say something dramatic in verse six. He says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Really? Really, John? Really? And and I, I don't think he's saying that we never sin because we know that we know that we do, we know that we do. What he's saying is that if you are watching the example of Christ, if you are uh, listening to his teaching, if you are engaging in regular self-evaluation, you are going to be dealing with these patterns of sin that come up throughout a person's life on a regular basis, and you are gonna be able to overcome those things. So how can you say so confidently that I'm gonna be able to overcome it? 
resurrection. The Bible says the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is at work in you. And this passage is specifically talking about when, when that, when that uh, line is used, it's talking about overcoming sin. So the good news is, is you can overcome the sin that has gripped your family for generations. You don't have to be a slave to it. You don't have to be a slave to what you just naturally feel tempted to. You don't have to be a slave to your desire. You absolutely and and completely can overcome these types of sins because the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is at work in you. But we have to keep our eye on him. Listen to his teachings, examine his life, follow his teachings, engage in heart, uh, looking at our heart and self-examination and all of that stuff and all of that. I know I've been talking like 20 minutes and here's kind of where I wanted to land this is that I believe, and the argument I'm trying to make, is that I believe Jesus should be our standard of righteousness. Think if you're looking at where am I gonna stand in terms of how I determine what is right, how I determine what is wrong, how I determine how I should live, that Jesus is our standard for righteousness. That his life is the life we should strive to live. His teaching is the one that we should base our life on. His ways should be our ways, Jesus. That's what I came up here to say today. Jesus is the standard. So what we're doing in our culture right now, and I want to get into this because we don't want to settle for any less than what I just shared. I really believe that. What we're doing in our culture right now is we are replacing Jesus. So Jesus should be the standard. And we are replacing Jesus with self. I really, really believe that. We are replacing Jesus with self. We are making our words the words that are most important our way and our will, our standard of righteousness. And if I can say this with all love and like honestly dripping zeroness of anything negative, I don't think it's working super well. I really don't. I really don't think replacing Jesus with self in our culture has been a fantastic idea. And I certainly don't think it's good for followers of Jesus to engage in this. And there's several reasons. Let me just share a couple of them. That because we aren't fully righteous like Jesus, it makes us wildly inconsistent as people in our assessment of what is right and what is wrong. I could point to a lot of examples of this uh, in our culture Um, I decided to zero in on politics. You're welcome. Because you wanted to come to church and feel awkward, right? But but there there is this thing you have probably noticed in the political realm where a member of one party will do something and the other members of their party will say, they'll go into protect mode, right? And they say, well, there's reasons that happened. Grace really ought to rule the day. They ought to be given another chance. And the member of the opposite party, six months down the road, will do the exact same thing, almost to a T, and it's like, well, they need to resign. They they need to be done. That, That there's absolutely no grace that comes. They need to be removed from office, and it's wildly inconsistent. Why does that happen? Well, it happens for a lot of reasons, but one of them is we're not, as human beings, we're not as consistently righteous as Jesus is. And so we're not as consistent in what we view as right and wrong as Jesus is. Another one, because we're not fully holy like Jesus, it opens us up to being deceived by our sinful nature. And I think this is huge. We all have a sinful nature. We were born with it. You can thank your parents. Um, You can actually thank your first parents, Adam and Eve, for that. 
But because of that, because we all are born with certain desires towards certain things, because of that, it is so easy to be deceived in our culture about what is like funny. Have you ever found yourself like watching something? And I don't want to be too judgmental about this because I've done it too, but you find yourself watching something, you're like, why am I laughing at this? This does not meet up with the standard of righteousness of, of my Savior. So we can be deceived about what is funny, what is righteous, what is holy. Jesus is never deceived. It just makes him a better standard. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 4, you should read Matthew 4 when you get a chance. Matthew 4, Satan comes and he tries to deceive Jesus. Uh, and he absolutely fails at deceiving Jesus. It just doesn't work. And Jesus makes for a better standard of righteousness than for you or for me. Because he's never deceived. Because we aren't fully loving like Jesus, it can make us very harsh in the way that we talk about righteousness. When we replace Jesus with self, I don't know why this happens. I've been thinking about it, asking people, trying to get some ideas for how to share this. But there is something about this, that when I replace Jesus with me and I become the standard of righteousness uh, for the people around me, I become very harsh and the way that I talk and think about righteousness. Have you ever noticed when you read uh, through the Gospels and you examine Jesus' life that sinners love spending time with Jesus? They just did. Jesus was absolutely unwavering in his convictions. Jesus never compromised on the truth. He was unwavering in his convictions about right and wrong, but yet people wanted to be around him. And the Bible says the reason that happened is because Jesus came in grace and truth. And I, if I could ever see some like replayed footage, I want to see some of this replayed footage because I would love to know how Jesus did this, that he came in grace and truth and truth. So he spoke the truth, but he did it in a way that was loving, kind, and graceful. And we tend to be pretty harsh in our culture about our convictions. I don't know why. When I make myself, my thoughts, and my way the standard, I find that I'm not very loving to the people that disagree with me. And it makes for this message of, when I make myself the center, it makes for this message of, this is my standard of righteousness, and there's usually no grace path available. One of the best examples in our culture, I think, is cancel culture. That when people don't measure up, uh, usually in cancel culture, there's no grace path back. There's no grace path for redemption. And our culture, I'm just gonna become a preacher here for a minute. Um, our culture is absolutely losing our connection to and understanding of grace. And let it never be said of the church because as a follower of Jesus, we don't get to have no grace path available. That we don't get to have that as our MO because Jesus Christ is our savior and we have been forgiven and we have been shown grace upon grace upon grace and we show that same grace to others. In other words, there's always a grace path available. As Christians, we don't get to cancel people from grace, right? That, that, that there's always a grace path, path available. And what happens is you have a culture where people are making themselves the standard. They replace Christ with self. And here's my question. What happens when you've got a whole bunch of people that have done that? That have, are not upholding Jesus as the absolute standard for righteousness. They've replaced him with themselves. What do you get when you have a whole bunch of people that have done that? 2021. That's what you get. And things become very combustible. They become angry. And at times, they become even violent. 
I want to encourage us this morning. There's nothing really we can do. Paul, the Apostle Paul said, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? And I know I just spent like 10 minutes talking about outside, you know. Um, but I wanted to give us a context for thinking about our world. There's not much we can do about the world, but there is something as followers of Jesus that we can do about ourselves. And I want to encourage us this morning to have Jesus be our absolute standard for righteousness. Don't settle for anything less. Um, that he is the center of what we think about when it means to be righteous. His words, his life, his way. I love how John says it. He says, don't let anyone lead you astray. Don't let anyone lead you astray. So let Jesus reign in your heart and in your mind. Let him be your standard, your example, and your teacher. When you do that and you become convicted of sin in your life, see it, repent of it, follow Jesus, and by the power of his resurrection, overcome it. When you become convicted about sin in somebody else's life, the life of someone you love and care about, see it, but walk in grace and truth as you approach them. And when you see sin in our culture, again, no, all sarcasm aside, but when you see sin in our culture, for the love of all that is good and right, do not be surprised. Do not be angry. If they haven't seen Jesus, they haven't seen his righteousness. And so you know what we do as followers of Jesus when we see that in the world? We allow culture to see Jesus and his righteousness in us. You know what you do when you feel like this world is just kind of, to coin a phrase from my grandmother, going to hell in a handbasket? You know, she used to say that all the time. She used to feel that way. It's going to hell in a handbasket. You know what you do? You absolutely become convicted that I'm going to allow them to see Jesus in me. Anger is not the correct response. I really don't believe it is. Frustration is not the correct response. I really don't believe it is. What business is, of, is it of mine to judge those outside the church? But I can display Christ and I can display his righteousness for others to see. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, maybe that can happen with his help, his grace, and his guidance. Let's receive communion together. We want to remember that uh, Jesus is our absolute standard for righteousness. He is our example, and we don't want to be led astray. And so this is an opportunity right now um, for us to do business with God, and for God, more specifically, for God to do business with us. And so I'm going to pray for us and uh, leave a little bit of time of quiet. You can pray uh, to God and just ask him uh, what I did during first services. Man, God, if there's something going on in my heart, my mind, my, man, convict me. Right now, convict me of, of what I need to do and, and bring that sin to the forefront of my mind. Make me uncomfortable and give me the power to repent and turn away from it and live the righteous life you've called me to live. So I'm gonna pray. Uh, we'll spend a little bit of time, quiet time with God and then I'll close this out uh, and uh, we'll receive communion together. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. We thank you that he is absolutely our standard of righteousness. We do not want to be settlers uh, in this arena. We don't want to settle for anything less. That he is our standard. And may we listen to his words, see his example, and walk in his truth. And right now, Lord, we want to spend a little bit of quiet time with you and just allow you uh, to convict us. If we've already been convicted, to remind us that we're forgiven we absolutely are forgiven uh, and to remind us of how much you love us, that you forgive our sin, but you want us to overcome it. 
Help us to remember those two things. All these prayers we lift up to you. It is in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. His body given for you, his blood poured out. May we leave this place this morning understanding that because of this moment that we just celebrated, we are forgiven of all of our sin and we are empowered to overcome. You don't have to leave here a slave to that sin. We can leave here empowered to overcome and may we walk in the righteous life that he has laid out for us. God bless you guys. Have a great week ahead.